Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome, everybody, to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we explain how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects like puppies, potatoes and sacks. I want to do sacks. That's so good. (laughs) I want to do puppies, um, partly because I want to demonise puppies. My daughters want puppies. And um, and I and uh, and I I don't want a puppy at the moment. I don't have time for a puppy. However, that makes me sound like a grouch, and I'm not. Uh, we will be oh, following yeah. the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example? Who knew that faces are all about Tudor society and the vanity of Elizabeth I, Queen of England, or that cars are all about militarisation in Nazi Germany. The man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, he will nevertheless help pilot us through these micro-histories. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Uh, And the man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing during homeschooling, but yet ably helping me co-pilot these micro-history episodes. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, James. Uh, This is one of our little micro-histories, which we very much enjoy doing. What we do is we embrace the task of demonstrating how an unexpected subject not only has a history, but is very, very important and interesting in just 15 minutes. We start with a shared example and then have just five minutes each to make a case for an interesting history on that very subject. Contributions are rigorously timed. And you, our dear listeners, you will get to vote on social media on what you think was the most interesting fact you heard in the episode. Today's topic is the fascinatingly unexpected history of keys, James. Where are we going to start? Well, Sam, we were inspired to do this episode by our little book on the Vikings. So let's start there and in particular, unlock the unexpected history of the key, which as a security device has a history that stretches back more than six thousand years and keys were widely known in the viking age when the technology and complexity of locks developed significantly and during this period we see the proliferation of a wide variety and shapes and sizes and designs of keys from the simple and the ornamental those that are actually very practical and those that are actually symbolic Now, in Viking society, these keys were a significant source of power. And this is because keys allowed people the ability to control and deny access to space, whether it's space within the household, whether it's private or whether it's communal. And the locking of doors, chests or trunks keeps property and goods secure. 
and unlocking them again allowed access to particular areas and resources. So here's the thing. The people who controlled the keys were therefore the people with the power to control access. And that's a fascinating way of thinking about power in Viking society. Yeah, and you can particularly think about it in relation to the Viking housewife. The key is a symbol in the Vikings of a female womanly authority, and they'd wear keys uh, on chains outside their dresses as a sign of their domestic responsibility and their domestic position. There are all sorts of wonderful tales of rich married women carrying keys like this. They're everywhere, in fact, in saga literature. The Rigsthula uh, cites a key-hung maiden in goatskin kirtle, and there are other legal tracks dating from the 12th and 13th centuries, which speak of housewives, their right to have the keys to the household. So they're the ones who have access. Archaeological evidence backs this up. It's absolutely fascinating. It shows that women were buried with keys among their grave goods. Uh, and for many the, the historians, these well, the female keys, the keys associated with women, if you will, I mean, taken to represent a source of women's authority within the household. So, again, as James was saying, the ability to gain and restrict access to domestic spaces, uh, the ability to to um, to secure possessions and goods. So you've got the, the person with the key, the key bearer, has legal rights, has obligations. And for women, um, the ownership of keys almost defines their authority within marriage and the household. The archaeological evidence is important here because it suggests that keys found in graves were not simply a symbol of being a housewife because only certain women were buried with keys. So there are sort of subsets going on here. In fact, examination of known female burial sites shows that only around 5% of women had keys as grave goods. Um, we also know that keys were buried with women at all levels of society, irrespective of standing or role with the exception of the wealthiest. Now, it's believed that they didn't need keys because others carried them on their behalf. So it, it suggests that keys were not uh, merely carried by all housewives, but had meanings that extended beyond access to the threshold of the home. So there's a, a kind of a much broader history of keys and women there. We're just starting to unravel it. And keys weren't simply practical. They were also symbolic. And some of the keys that have been recovered from these graves that Sam's been talking about were actually unusable and appear to have been more symbolic than practical. So they weren't actually used to lock things. Now, this, of course, poses a significant problem of interpretation for historians. However, if we view the locks that they opened figuratively rather than literally, then we can see these keys as providing the power to open doors, not in a single world, but from one sphere to another, perhaps from childhood to adulthood, or the door from life to death. And it's no coincidence that keys have also been found in numerous Viking Age child graves in Sweden, which archaeologists believe is suggestive of a symbolic power, perhaps connected to passing into other realms, so from the realm of the living into the realm of the dead. And such symbolic keys might be associated with the power of prediction 
for example, of being able to see the future by unlocking other worlds and seeing what changes it will bring. And women who carried keys were not simply housewives in this line of argument, but actually carriers of knowledge itself, which was an important form of power. And keys could function as a religious, as religious icons or as cultic icons. And we can see this in a famous poem uh, from one of the Eddas, um, Thrymsvida, uh, where the key is connected to the female goddess Freya, the wife of Thor. And in the poem, Thor dresses up as his wife in order to trick the giant uh, Thrymir. Uh, he puts on her clothing and, importantly, ties her housewife's keys around his waist. And the deception works, um, no doubt, thanks to the fact that, you know, Thor is being very careful in his attention to detail of the keys. And throughout its association with Freya, the key is more than merely a physical means of accessing the household. It represents women's role as leaders, as childbearers, and their role in the afterlife. And as a key bearer, Freya is therefore represented as keeper of the dead in the afterlife. She's a goddess of fertility and is figured in Norse mythology as a helper of women in labour. So in this realm of childhood, then, the key was viewed as a device to unlock women's loins. It was also a pre-Christian symbol of female fertility and motherhood. Hmm. The symbolism is important as well. But of course, there's a very practical, practical use of keys, which is worth thinking about, particularly in the Viking Age. Um, and again, you get these ideas connected with power, but they're much more sort of firm and concrete rather than metaphorical and symbolic. So if you think of a key, it, it, what it does is, I suppose, it, it betrays an ancient instinct to protect property. If you think about the keys as a functional object, um, you've got to think about it in association with doors, boxes, chests, trunks. Um, keys and locks were intimately, they have to have been linked to privacy, to wealth and to authority by giving people the power to lock precious objects away to control their use. Whether these precious objects are weapons, jewellery, precious metal or textiles, whatever it might be. And it's important to realise that it wasn't just women who owned the keys. They appear among grave goods of both women and men. Um, they also appear in urban sites um, on their own, where they're discovered as single finds. Um, th this means that there's an enormous range of keys that have been discovered by archaeologists. Um, the keys are varied in design, but they're typically made out of iron and copper alloys and it's very clear that they required a significant amount of artistic and technical skill to both design and to make them. They're wonderful little survivals from the Viking period. A comparison of studies of keys found at Gotland and Birka in Sweden, um, they, I love this, it suggests that they, there may be actual differences between men's keys and women's keys. Archaeologists have argued that keys buried with women tended to be uh, more simple, uh, perhaps more functional, well, men's keys are more ornate. 
Um, they're decorated. They include images of things like powerful birds, and they're very intricate, more intricate. The, the teeth of the keys, there are more of them. They're more carefully cut. So it's believed that while women's keys tended to open, say, something like a door, uh, it's connected with space, men's keys, uh, it's understood they were they were kept for padlocks or chests, uh, so very much to perhaps secure weapons and valuables. Oh, lovely. And there, there are some fantastic examples of keys and padlocks that are found that where they've obviously locked up large collections of weapons, but also treasure chests. And one of the finest examples of a locked Viking chest containing valuables comes from the Caredale Hoard. And this was discovered in the spring of 1840 in the banks of the River Ribble in Lancashire. And what it is is a, a lead-lined chest which contained, get this, some seven and a half thousand silver coins with also great quantities of other silver jewellery or scrap, also known as hack silver. So some 40 kilograms of silver in all. And it's the largest known Viking horde in the West and in the East. And it's only surpassed by a handful of discoveries along the ancient Arabic silver route into Russia. Now, the hoard, which dates from around circa 904 AD, contains coins and jewellery from all over the Viking world, from Scandinavia, from Francia, from Italy, Ireland, Pictland and England. And it is believed to be the loot of a Viking army. And its location in the northwest of Britain has led some historians to think that it's actually linked to the expulsion of the Vikings from Dublin in 902. And some of these Vikings settled in what is now Lancashire. So in this way, Keyes contributed to defining personal property, to demarcating ownership, and it's no surprise that Viking laws demanded more severe punishment of thieves who stole things that were under lock and key than those miscreants who pilfered from an open area where valuables were not locked away. So there you have it, Sam. Viking keys are all about control and authority. Mm, well, where do we go from here? How else might we think about keys, James? I'm going to start. Go on, give me a, give me a timer. OK, you have a very strict five minutes, Sam, and you are... I'm going to count you down. Uh, let me do this. Uh, three, two, one. Make history. <laughs> well, I'm, I, Keys is actually allowing me to talk about one of my favourite artefacts and also one of my favourite buildings. So I'm particularly excited about, about this topic. I'm going to talk about Exeter Cathedral and the Exeter Book. Keys and cathedrals are interesting. It's worth thinking about what's going on here. Um, the cathedral in Exeter, is that, the full name is the Cathedral of St Peter of Exeter. It's a wonderful building. You want to come and see it if you haven't. It's it's on the site of a Roman army camp. There's a Roman bath nearby. Its origins are very ancient indeed. It dates back to before the Norman conquest, um, almost a generation or so, to 1050. It's when the Bishop of Crediton, there used to be a bishop in Crediton, uh, moves to Exeter. 
Uh, it's a fascinating period, this just before the Norman Conquest. It's a, Exeter's a major centre, very important indeed. William the Conqueror then marches down here in 1068 after the Battle of Hastings when he's trying to secure, consolidate power. Anyway, the point is Exeter, very, very big uh, location, very, very important cathedral. And the the uh, uh, logo is probably the wrong word. Um, ecclesiastical heraldry might be the right word. The, the the image associated with Exeter is the crossed keys of St. Peter. So where do these keys come from? What do they mean? Why are they there? And I think for those of you who are keen on your ecclesiastical herald heraldry, you'll realise that it's not just Exeter where you see these keys. There are others, particularly on the Vatican. It goes back to a Bible story. Jesus promises the keys of heaven to St. Peter and it gives him certain interesting powers. So this is from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Binding in this sense means to forbid. And he goes on. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And loosing in this sense means to permit. So the binding and loosing is interesting. I'd like to read some more about that. But that's why uh, the Cathedral of St. Peter has the has the keys. It's the, these are the keys that Jesus has uh, promised the keys. They are the keys to heaven. Um, and you can you can see them some elsewhere, particularly in imagery associated with the Vatican. So that idea got me thinking about. Uh, Exeter Cathedral but I also want to talk about something that's magical that's in the Exeter Cathedral Library and that's the Exeter book. It's a 10th century book it's very ancient indeed and it's full of Anglo-Saxon poetry. It's one of only four of the major Anglo-Saxon um, codices, various other ones but um, I, this is definitely my favourite because it's full of riddles. We know that riddles were some of the most fascinating of early uh, English literary text um, because I think so many of them have passed the test of time as much as anything else. We don't know whether they were read or recited out loud but they were clearly popular amongst monastic communities who produced manuscripts and also probably amongst everyday people as well but the, 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 the surviving examples we have are from these monastic communities. There are 95 riddles in the Exeter book, and there are also many hundreds more uh, in Latin poetry from other Anglo-Saxon authors. Um, it's important to realise that the Exeter book is itself anonymous, but we know that there were some other very well-known writers at the time enjoying um, composing and sharing riddles um, from the 7th and the 8th century. We've got poems by Aldhelm. Um, he was the abbot of Malmesbury, Bishop of Sherburne, as well as Tatwine. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, and even some by St Boniface. He's an Anglo-Saxon missionary and Archbishop of Mainz in, in uh, the Frankish Empire, so modern day Germany. The point about all of this, James, I'm coming to the keys. Uh, there's a really wonderful one here. And I'd like you to you can probably guess already what the solution to this is. This is one of the one of the surprisingly rude riddles from uh, the Exeter book. A wondrous thing hangs by a man's thigh, under its lord's clothing. In front there is a hole. It stands stiff and hard. It has a good home. When the servant raises his own garment up over his knee, he wants to greet with his dangling head that well-known hole of equal length, which he has often filled before. And if you haven't worked it out, the answer to this, of course, is a key. Uh, and it's really interesting. It's a particularly rude key. 
Um, but if you think about this and people, there's an interesting layer of history of 19th century historians trying to deal with the rudeness of the Exeter book, the riddles in the Exeter book. Oh, James, are you rattling keys at I'm me? I'm jangling keys at you, Sam. <laughs> That's my five minutes up. Let me just finish. Um, what I really like about this is, is how rude this riddle is. And there are many other ones as well. But there was a, a historian writing in the 19th century, a guy called Benjamin Thorpe. And what he does, he deems it advisable to include only the original text of a handful of riddles, right, which are the rude ones. And he claims they're too difficult to translate into modern English. Um, it's very unlikely that the words himself, he's stumped by the words. They're all pretty, pretty straightforward words. Uh, he even has a go elsewhere in translating some very heavily damaged riddles. So the, these ones all survive. They're just very, very rude. Um, and so he chooses not to engage with this type of material. So uh, this, this, this sexy key, James, has, has, has confunded a Victorian man. So there we have... Um, for me, keys are all about religious heraldry, the Pope, Vatican City, um, bawdy monks and embarrassed 19th century historians. Oh, I love it, Sam. Love it. Love it. Love it. I have what I have. I have something for you as well. OK, um, when three, two, one, open up the door of history with your keys, James. Begin. <laughs> That's it. Well, I, as I was as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, what do I do? And so I did a whole load of research on early modern keys. And there's all sorts of evidence about people having keys to lock desks and to lock rooms and to lock studies uh, in order to guard paperwork. And this relates to work I've done on letter writing and archives. And then having put in all that work, I then realised that I had in fact talked about that uh, previously. So I had to do a complete about turn and find another topic. And the topic that I chose was latch keys, and in particular, latch key children. Have you heard of this phenomenon, Sam? Latch key no. children. These are children who return after a day at school uh, to an empty house. There's no parent there at all. And they have round their neck a latch key, uh, which is the key to the front door that allows them to get in. And... It basically is is young children coming back when their parents are away at work. And it is a phenomenon that starts during World War Two, uh, not only in Canada and America, but also in Great Britain. And that's how we know about it, because what happened was fathers were away fighting. Mothers had no choice but to go out to work to get a job, either to help with the war effort or to earn money to bring into the household. Childcare isn't always available in the way that it is, you know, easily available nowadays. And in fact, you know, we get, I think it's 30 hours of free childcare for children before school, schooling age. Um, but it wasn't available for them. So there was no choice for many parents other than to simply give their children a key and then to come home. Now, the term is first coined in Canada in 1942, and it appears in a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation radio programme called Discussion Club, topic, How War Affects Canadian Children. And it's described there that, you know, and I quote, children between the ages of five and 13 
uh, come home, have to look after themselves until parents or guardians return home. And sometimes you've got children, you know, having to cook their their own meals and that sort of thing. The real concern is with what impact does this have on children? There's all there are all sorts of comments in throughout newspapers about the church about what these um what these problems are um and there's a, a quote here from the fitchburg sentinel that's fitchburg massachusetts from um which um which talks about the the the, the problems in in um in america about this another uh from new york city uh, describes the stroll through the black belt by day and you'll see swarms of unattended youngsters, most of them wearing keys on strings around their necks. These are the latchkey children put on the streets early each morning by their working mothers, collected again at night. If a child becomes ill or is injured, some stranger may take it to its home and put it to bed. Um, in 1942, on the 22nd of July, the Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester, New York, uh, worries about the profound dislocations which have been caused by war production. There are new towns where none existed. There are boom towns which have doubled or tripled their populations. In some communities, there are latchkey children who come to school. And the fear is that they see an increase in drinking and gambling, more juveniles who wander the streets at night, more sex problems among girls. In in Britain, in the Daily Record and Mail, on the 15th of October 1943, they actually take on the Bishop of Derby, who's drawing a sort of vivid picture of the the his his the people in his congregation and the worry about seeing little children around the streets. They basically say the predicament of children is serious and we agree with the views of convocation that family ties ought to be strengthened in Britain. But the force of his illustration was weakened by the admission that many of the mothers of these half-neglected children are at war work. So you've got then this tension between you know the the social problems of latchkey children and actually it being a necessity ah i can hear you jangling keys are I they am, your I'm keys jangling. or is that a recording <laughs> that's a recording of some key jangling i think i'd like you to imagine them to be uh the the latch keys to a house you're trying to get into yourself oh, excellent. i'm very much excellent. enjoying this story you may you may sum up i'm a wastrel on the street so as i was saying the tension then is between on the one hand the social problems of having children who have no parental supervision after school and the actual need during the war for women to go out to work and and husbands uh, fathers to go off and fight we know from oral history um, the experience of these children. Uh, uh, a woman called Sandra Fletcher was just five years old uh, in 1944 and was recorded uh, remembering um, her her school years uh, when she, she writes, I used to wear the key around my neck on a piece of string. It was about three quarters of a mile from school back to my home. I just let myself into the house and waited for my parents to get home. Sometimes I would bring my school friend home. I used to get them to make the beds and tidy up. My mum would have had a fit if she'd known. So you can see from that 
that that actually children at home could be quite responsible and are, and are getting on with things. And I think the I think there is still the sort of phenomenon of latchkey children today, and parents are criticised for that. But certainly during this period, during the war effort, I think there is a sense that people did understand that mothers shouldn't be criticised and were actually supporting the war effort. So there we are. Latchkeys is all about uh, children, mothers and World War Two. Oh, very good indeed, guys. I hope you have very much enjoyed that little micro-history. I felt like I had a long one, actually, but that's all good. That's all good. Um, do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell, and the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. You can follow us on Instagram and uh, on Facebook, and you can also find out everything that we have been up to and are, and are up to uh, by checking out our website historiesoftheunexpected.com that's it for now guys thank you very much for listening we'll be in touch soon bye bye take care bye